Political culture tends to put the boundaries around where exactly they can go. Mm. And that culture continually shifts and it moves back and forth. But the number one error people, especially politicians, and many times my political science colleagues make, is that they think elections are somehow going to either impact or perfectly reflect those Mm. shifts in culture. Many people are likely looking at our government and thinking, I didn't vote for this. People often point out that the government doesn't accomplish things that serve the popular interests and lament that the system is broken. However, the contradiction between the popular will on the one hand and unpopular policy on the other raises an interesting question about what exactly is the popular will and to what ends does it serve? Joining us today is Dr. Ryan Yonke. He's a senior research faculty here at the American Institute for Economic Research, and he specializes in political science. Ryan has published many papers on everything ranging from voter behavior to interest group politics, making him perfect to explain from an analytical perspective why our politics are so strange today. So Ryan, I want to start off with uh, almost like a metaphysical question that's really been bugging me. So I hear from my Democratic friends that which is just good enough people out there to vote Democrats win. And my Republican friends will say, the vast majority of this country is actually quite conservative and the Democrats are out of touch and they've hijacked our institutions. And then my libertarian friends keep telling me, even though we've gotten less than 3% of the vote maximum, that the majority of the country is actually libertarian. They just don't know it. So given all these contrasting claims about the quote unquote popular will, is it even fair to say that America votes for essentially what it wants all the time, or is there something bigger at play? Well, so I think there's a couple of things in response to that, Ethan, that I would um, suggest um, that they're all right and they're all wrong, um, because the notion of a popular will, which is particularly uh, popular uh, in sort of democratic theory realms, um, particularly from those like Rousseau who talked about <clears throat> who talked about these underlying ideas that somehow we could simply tap into what <clears throat> the general will is, which was the Rousseauian claim, that we could then arrive at good government. And from that, the democratic theorists built even further uh, and suggested that the question was one of an allocation mechanism. is how could you structure allocation in such a way that we could then, through some procedure, reveal what the general will is. The problem in all that um, is that democratic elections, by their very nature, are static instances of a single moment in time uh, and include only those who actually participate in the electoral process. And so in the, on the one hand, uh, it's correct that they do represent the will of the people with regards to a specific candidate, mm. um, but a specific candidate within the context of who the other candidate was, the situation at the time, the ongoing political fights. Um, but that may not hold next week or next year or tomorrow. Mm. And so the decision mechanism rather than being some sort of wholly revelatory approach to understanding the world, instead is just what what I described, a decision Mm -hmm. mechanism. Because functionally, for government to work, for democracies to function, uh, you have to have a way of deciding. Mm -hmm. And elections uh, are that procedure. Uh, They tend to work actually fairly well. Um, They're relatively stable. They, They do aggregate information. But they don't necessarily reveal some greater truth. They're not Mm. a truth-seeking endeavor. They're a decision-making endeavor. Mm. And so when we talk about, for example, the midterms just passed and sort of there's a shift from the House being majority Democratic to now more Republican, 
is that sort of an illustration that you know last the last midterms the country uh, swung more blue now it's swung more red so what you're saying is like one time voters might have thought another thing but for some reason based on current events they're they just shifted their opinions and this shift in parties is just kind of representing that yeah immediate. so i think it's actually far far more sort of um, mechanistic than that mm. because rather than it being that elections are somehow um swapping back and forth this revealed uh, notion of truth or the decision-making process what we really can look at and say is that over the course of the electoral cycle and as the decisions were being made um, the total number of representatives in congress that affiliate with what with one party changes based on the electoral circumstances the candidates that are involved the issues and so politicians particularly winning politicians mm. like to claim a mandate claim that somehow they have now been granted um <clears throat> this greater insight or greater support um because this the because the selection mechanism selected them mm. or their party mm -hmm. uh to be in control based on the set of rules that we have. Now, there's nothing about the set of rules we have that are particularly, um, they, they don't emerge from some natural law. Mm. They emerge from uh, principles that we can find in natural law about individual liberty, individual decision-making, and those sorts of things. And they're simply allocation mechanisms. They're mechanisms by which we decide um, who, will, who will actually hold office, who will make decisions, and... In many ways, it's far more practical than this grand truth-seeking endeavor that sometimes people, especially politicians, like to describe it as. Mm. And when you talk about essentially an allocation mechanism, so you're essentially setting up that there's a lot of things we can get done privately, like you know most things like baking bread or like get, making the water run, but there's some things that we need essentially as a society to figure out, whether that's like healthcare or law and, law and order, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't actually don't think that's right. Mm. I think that um, any of the, any number of those things could be handled through different allocation mechanisms. By its nature, the when we emer when government emerges, and typically government first emerges and then is planned, mm. um, we're clearly very much in the plan side of what government looks like. And the plan is that allocation mechanism. It says we are going to have government. And now we're going to have a mechanism by which we select those who will govern. Mm. In the United States, of course, um, our system operates um, in the form of a republic, uh, meaning that we will select representatives that will then make decisions about how to govern. How much they govern, in what areas, those are inherently political decisions that are made after the initial allocation. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, Buchanan and Tulloch, James Buchanan, Nobel Prize winner, and his longtime co-author Gordon Tulloch, who is also an economist, um, write about this uh, pretty extensively. Uh, and they write about the notion of constitutional political economy mm. as being foundational to our ability to understand the rest of political economy. Because that initial allocation mechanism, and I talk about it like an allocation mechanism on purpose, because all it's doing is allocating power. Mm. And here we choose to allocate power through that republic, <clears throat> through the Republican system, Involving elections with power divided across branches. We now start to get into basic civics mm. that hopefully Americans are being taught. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure they all are, but uh, it's the basic civics that Americans are taught. And it and the American system divides power both vertically and horizontally, mm -hmm. um, meaning that 
the federal government isn't in charge of everything and no single branch is in charge of everything. And as a result, the way in which those decisions happen change the ebb and flow of politics, which of course then has practical implications for what government chooses to do or to not do. Hmm. And you hear people toss around the word political culture a lot. And so I'm interested in your perspective of you laid out a very institutional argument. Um, do you think political culture or institutions explains why, you know, America is more freedom loving, uh, you know, don't touch my guns, get out of my, you know, whatever. And maybe like a country like France, you know, a bit more large, a bit larger government and country like England, maybe a bit larger government. How much do you think political culture explains why voters vote for what they do. Well, so culture matters quite a lot. And I, I wouldn't draw a hard distinction between political culture and general culture. In fact, mm. I think they're pretty pretty well intertwined. Um, when we think about what we mean by political culture, culture is the accumulated interactions of human beings uh, making decisions across time. That's how culture develops. And a variety of different cultures develop um, not just worldwide, but in the United States as well. You can move from region to region and you will identify different cultures. There are some things that unify American culture. That general view on self-reliance, independence, liberty, all those things are important. But they're not created by the political system. Mm. They, in fact, are what help to create and influence the political system. And as a result we end up having boundaries around what is possible for government to do once mm. we decide to, um, once we actually engage the voting process and select who will govern. Political culture tends to put the boundaries around where exactly they can go. Mm. And that culture continually shifts and it moves back and forth. But the number one error people, especially politicians, and many times my political science colleagues make, is that they think elections are somehow going to either impact or perfectly reflect those mm. shifts in culture. And instead, they're very much a lagging indicator of how culture has changed. Mm -hmm. If we take the 60,000-foot view, we can look and see how culture has shifted and how politics comes along behind it. If we go back 30 years and look at the issues that are on the table 30 years ago, um, the specific issues are not the same. Mm -hmm. The ideas that underlie those issues are still ongoing. And we can see the culture that's shifted um, in subtle ways that move the boundaries of what is or is not possible inside politics. Mm. And so how would that explain maybe why California is one way, California tends to be more progressive and Texas tends to be more conservative? Do you think there's more of a cultural element or is that more so just the way like the institutional forces of politics play so, out? So it's both. Hmm. Um, so uh, I would describe myself largely as an institutionalist, a hmm. public choice scholar who believes that institutions matter, that institutions um, have a relatively robust effect on how uh, things will play out. By the same token, the development of Texas in terms of its culture versus the development of California those the repetitive sort of ongoing iterative effect leads to different sort of orientations. In part, you also have a self-selection issue going on that you see a culture develop and you begin to move towards that culture. Mm -hmm. And so you, you move towards the things that you like about that culture is a better way to say it. And so that selection builds over time. And so we end up with these distinctions, both institutionally and um, and culturally that end up mattering. But again, 
culture is what's placing the boundaries around what politics can do. Mm. In form, only at the margins institutionally are Texas and California different. Mm. Only in the specifics of what exactly government can do, do they are they different? If you look at the basic structure, they're both American states focused that use the com the English common law as its traditional root, use the statutes approach, um, and if you dig into it, you're going to find more similarity between the criminal and civil code of California and Texas than difference. Mm. The differences are real and they're important, but they're largely at the margin. Mm. And I guess many Americans would be. We always talk about the two party system. Um, why it is the way it is and a lot yeah. of back and forth what is your sort of theory on why there are two why are there just two political parties that Amer both Americans seem to both hate oh well I mean the answer to why Americans a two-party system is simple we have um, majority rule and single past the post election mm. cycles um, and so structurally those institutions mean that um, because it's because of the way in which it happens, you end up gravitating back towards two parties over time mathematically. I mean, mm -hmm. this is pretty, this is relatively um, consistently borne out that as soon mm -hmm. as you introduce the institutions the United States uses, you start to see this coalesce, coalition towards two parties. Mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. system is particularly that way because not only in each congressional seat do we select a single winner that is first past the post. Mm -hmm. um, geographically bounded we also select a president mm -hmm. um based on that uh, based on those same basic rules as well with the modification that they have to get a majority in the electoral college mm -hmm. so now suddenly you are um having to put together enough votes to win and that pushes all of it towards two parties mm -hmm. so it's more about creating coalitions that win rather than reflecting some more philosophical point about conservatism or libertarianism it's yeah. all about. So, so parties are not, parties um, sometimes have ideologies that are affiliated with them, but um, political parties are pure and simple about winning elections. Mm -hmm. um, they hope many times that they're going to have an ideological impact or an impact on policy, but the the job of a politician is to win elections, mm -hmm. um, particularly when they're in the candidate mode. Um, sometimes they switch into governing mode, but mm -hmm. <laughs> the modern reality is that doesn't happen mm -hmm. um, very easily because you have to, in fact, continually run for re-election, particularly if you're in the House. Mm -hmm. You'll notice senators tend to have something slightly different, and second-term presidents have mm -hmm. something different as well. But that the reality of the continual run for office means that they're in candidate mode, and therefore, they're focused on collecting enough votes to mm -hmm. win. And that's fundamentally what drives them. And our hope in the American system, and this is really, I think, in part the genius of the American system, is that in order to collect enough votes, you have to convince enough people, mm -hmm. individuals voting in their home districts, individuals voting for president, that in fact, what you claim you're going to do aligns with them. Mm -hmm. That's a great hope. In reality... Parties have become proxies for sets of policy bundles that people expect that they're going to try to implement, um, sets of values that they're continually going to fail at. Um, but ultimately, that's the great hope. That's the logic of why, why we do this, is we're trying to get to, mm -hmm. some, get to something that resembles what the people want. Mm. So what exactly would be the idealized version of the... You know, Congress people are in for only X amount of years, so they're constantly in what you say campaign mode. Um, 
Ideally, you know, you'd think that's a good thing as in they're constantly trying to get the popular will. What exactly is the reality? Like what, they're in campaign mode. What in, what is influencing them and why is it not just the popular will in the abstract? Yeah, the, the fun, the, the, the sort of funny line from political science is that they act as though they are single-minded Mm. Uh, seekers of re-election um, that's comes out of the literature and political science um, and the political science scientist to me then wants to say but of course we know they're not just single-minded mm. seekers uh, and that's I think largely right but re-election is always in the back of their mind and in fact the system was designed in many ways so that it would be at the back of their mind particularly for members of the House of Representatives mm -hmm. that in fact the people's house as the founder as the framers like to call it um, was meant to be a place where it was continually on their mind whether or not they were going to be reselected to go back mm -hmm. and so as a result i'm actually a fairly hard opponent of term limits mm -hmm. um, for a host of reasons not the least of which is the campaign the continual campaigning isn't isn't a isn't a deviation from the system as it was set up. In fact, it was hard baked into the system. Mm. It was meant to be part of what was going on. Now, the framers were very concerned about the problems of faction, the idea that you would have um, splinters within the new American uh, system that would make it impossible for them to come to decisions that would benefit the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. But they wanted them tied back to the, the people and at the same time, they were deeply concerned about that reality. And so you'll notice they set up the rest of the elected parts of government to sever that connection. Mm. Um, the president isn't, elect, isn't elected directly. Senators were not elected directly. There was the balance that was going on. And that balance, rather than representing some revealed truth, is about the practicalities of the allocation mechanism and the selection of how government will run. Mm. And of course, we can't jump into the mind of all the framers, but in your opinion, did they establish a de liberal democratic constitutional republic? <clears throat> essentially, is, was voting implemented to preserve and advance liberty, or was voting more so a recognition that society has all these various preferences that it needs to figure out one way or another? So, so I think that's actually, so I think that's a very <clears throat> modernist take on how to frame the question. Mm. Um, so remember, the, the framers had a couple hundred years of experience in self-government mm. behind them um, at the time of the revolution. Um, many of the, the, as you were dealing with the colonies that were set up in the new world by, by Great Britain, the, the charters issued initially to the, to, to Virginia and to the companies that helped establish them granted immense self-government rights. Mm. So too with, um, what was going on in New England at the same time. And in fact, part of what went on was this grand experiment in, in self-government. That in fact, um, the major sort of disagreement that emerges in the, in the revolutionary period, um, we often frame it as being around taxes. But mm. fundamentally, it was a question of how involved Great Britain was going to be in, in the colonies. And in fact, um, the taxes became the flashpoint because it was in the direct the direct sort of involvement of the mother country into the realm, where now what had been largely left um, to them to govern was now in theirs, and they had been they had governed largely in that period through um, selection mechanisms through elections, and in fact it had become um, expected 
that um, there would be elections. Uh, it was true in Great Britain at the time as well. It was um, Parliament had developed um, a robust and important role. And so there was long-run experience with it. And so it was... Uh, it wasn't. I don't. I don't believe it was a question of we're going to do something new in order to attempt to solve these problems. In fact, I think they would have referred to it as a very, um, fairly conservative mm -hmm. um, revolution. That in fact, what you've done is you've taken these things, mm -hmm. and therefore we want them back. Mm -hmm. And the only way we're going to get them back because we can't trust you is by severing the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, there were more radicals. There were radicals that wanted to sever it for a whole host of other reasons. And in mm -hmm. fact, we mostly read the radicals. Mm -hmm. But within the founding generation was this group that was focused on um, a deep concern about the change that they were seeing. Mm -hmm. um, so we remember Sam Adams. We remember that part of the founders as mm -hmm. being firebrands. We often don't remember um, the Eldridge Garys and others that... Um, ultimately arrive at revolution uh, as the solution, but we're, we're seeking to return something back to what they had come to expect. Mm. So it's a, we mostly focus on the Jeffersons and the Adams who fundamentally want to make a new free country, change the world, but in reality, there's just a lot of people that didn't like what was going on, they wanted to preserve the status quo, and England was actively changing it, yeah. making things worse, taking away their rights. They wanted to preserve what they perceived as the status quo. Mm. And I think that's an important uh, piece to put in there. And I'm not entirely certain that um, that ultimately um, we couldn't even classify Jefferson and Adam and um, John Adams into mm. that category. Because they were, if you read Jefferson, Jefferson is um, going to pen the Declaration of Independence. And we read the first part. Mm -hmm. We don't read the second part, which is the list of grievances. Mm -hmm. And the grievances, you'll notice, are are not entirely, but are primarily things that had changed in how, how um, the crown was interacting with the colonies. Mm -hmm. If you read them in detail, taken away this, taken mm -hmm. away that, all those sorts of things. And so in many ways, that's part of what's going on. And the result from that is that we end up seeing these, we see not the invention of a democratic system, but the adoption of previous principles that are then put together in a unique way to try to prevent some of the problems that happened. And that's really the innovation of the founders, is the, const the construction of um, competitive power within a system that then binds the system both together mm. and prevents any single part of it from dominating. Mm. And that's, I think, the the innovative part, and the result, and it's also part of what creates the modern political dilemma mm. we have uh, of parties and mm. of partisanship. Mm. And so that's definitely a more like scientific way of looking at it, rather than a sort of schoolhouse rock. We love our country; it's all you know, all to forward liberty sort of way. I want to get into a little bit more into like sort of like those scientific components sure. when you're talking about different interest groups, incumbents. Um, you mentioned the almost essentially alluded to political entrepreneurs of people who like essentially yeah. recognize this stuff system and then leverage it for various ends. So when we when you I read some of your papers on you use the term political entrepreneurs. So yeah. can you actually explain that term and how does that exactly relate to American politics? Yeah, so so uh, political entrepreneur is not a term that I coined. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a very well-established term uh, in the um, 
in sort of the the political economy literature. Um, I can cons- um, I and my co-authors Deanna Thomas and Randy Simmons, which is I'm assuming that's the paper you wrote, mm-hmm. right? Um, conceived of political entrepreneurs as operating very much like a traditional entrepreneur uh, in the Kirchnerian sense. So a Kirchnerian entrepreneur. Uh, is scanning the horizon looking for opportunities. And then when they identify an opportunity, they act. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the basics of what Kirchnerian entrepreneurship looks like. Um, for us, we say within the political system of the United States, there are actors that are doing the same thing, that are scanning the policy horizon and the institutions and identifying opportunities to achieve something they want. Um, whether that's getting a policy thing they want, whether it's getting an advantage, they're scanning the horizon and they know both the institutions and the and sort of the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And as they scan, they then take action. And so a political entrepreneur for us looks essentially like the Kirchnerian entrepreneurship, um, the Kirchnerian entrepreneur just operating not inside the marketplace, mm. operating inside a different set of institutions, which we call government mm-hmm. and the political, sp- mm-hmm. political sphere. <clears throat> and so what are some examples of these political entrepreneurs and how do they really swing American politics and policy in the direction that some people might be thinking about? Yeah, so we often, so very, so we love to, we love to sort of abuse lobbyists um, <laughs> and rightly so. I mean, in part because they are political entrepreneurs. They are continually scanning the horizon, identifying where they can have, where they can get advantage, typically for clients mm-hmm. of them. They're professionals at this and they're scanning to say, okay, if we, if we, donate to this committee member's campaign, they'll listen to us, Mm -hmm. and then we can present. And so they do that. They've scanned the horizon. Uh, But even more generally, political entrepreneurs will be looking to say, okay, it looks like the marginal cultural piece has now shifted and created an opening Mm -hmm. for us to be able to do this much more or this much less of something, and now's the moment. Mm -hmm. And so they're scanning and watching that horizon to do so. and you can see this pop up um, periodically. Um, uh, honestly, the uh, the fight over the speakership, mm. um, uh, for as frustrating as Matt Gates and his cohort are, in many ways they were political entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. They they scan the horizon. They can do simple math. Mm-hmm. They knew that they if they didn't vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker, they were he wasn't going to be speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think they made a miscalculation and thought they were going to get someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple of them, and if you watch what happened, they, after we get, to, we get into like the third and fourth day, you watch people start to peel off. Mm. And, in, why they're, and why they're peeling off is because they had scanned the horizon, they had taken the action, and then they were able to get what they wanted. Mm. Um, it's a very crass example. Um, so Chip Roy, for example, is one was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got changes, policy changes to how the rules run in the House of Representatives. As a result, he'd mm-hmm. scanned it. He saw that if he took this action, he could potentially get what he wants. Major company, major companies and industries do it. Environmental groups do it. Mm-hmm. They're scanning the horizon, and they're not just mechanized components, because sometimes we forget that there are active 
components to the political system as well that are out there attempting to get what they want. And the mm -hmm. entrepreneur is seeing a new opportunity. So an entrepreneur isn't somebody that walks in and says, so you're the committee on X that does this. You should allocate this money that already exists to me. Mm -hmm. That's just a player in the system. The entrepreneur says, walks into the committee and says, okay, the change in law you just made now makes it possible for us to do this. And here's what we would propose. Mm -hmm. They're creating something new through their activity based on the rules and the opportunities that they see. And so we see that a lot from um, sort of those that are interested in new policies that were not possible before or that were not um, able to get. And so lobbyists, as I said, we, we malign them a lot, but the best of them are those that are out there actually identifying the new opportunities for their clients. Mm -hmm. And so I guess for an average voter's perspective, when you vote for someone, send them to Congress or whatever political branch you're sending them to, um, they have that general mandate like, oh, I was elected on this platform. But at the end of the day, you should expect them to essentially play to the set of rules that they didn't necessarily sign up for. Well, they're going to respond to the incentives. Mm -hmm. Everybody responds to incentives. Um, and the incentives that elected officials respond to are both electoral, they're institutional, and um, they're interpersonal. And so all those things are at play for an elected official, just like they're at play for any individual uh, operating in their daily life. Mm -hmm. We have institutional things that, that influence us. Um, we have reputational things, which would be where I would put the electoral side of it because mm -hmm. they want to be reelected. And we have interpersonal things that motivate us. And they're, they're operating in the same realm. We all too often forget that we didn't elect a robot. Mm. <laughs> we elected a person. Mm. And that person faces the same incentives that everyone does. Mm -hmm. And from a sort of like, how did I get this policy perspective? So when people, you know, vote for a conservative candidate, and all of a sudden, he's, you know, voting against gun control or, or voting for gun control and all that kind of stuff. Um, we, we hear the term bootleggers and Baptists a lot and how that's that's sort of these interest groups tend to crowd out what we would define as like the popular will per se. Um, so, like, what role do you think, or <clears throat> what is, what do you think is sort of like that political science dynamic of bootleggers and Baptists versus, like, sort of like the majority opinion? Yeah, so I think that the root of the question you're asking is, how do we end up with weird outcomes? <laughs> um, that's, and that's really where Baptists and bootleggers come from, mm -hmm. is how do two groups that seem, that should hate each other, come together on a common policy? Uh, the classic example comes um, from Bruce Yandel when he was... Um, a regulatory economist working for the government. Um, and he described something um, that uh, is, is unique to many southern counties or southern cities. And that is many southern cities and county, or counties are dry, or at least they were um, the period he was writing. And the question was, okay, why are they dry? Mm. Well, the, the easy answer is, well, they're nice religious Baptist folks. Mm. But when you start to dig into it, what keeps them dry across time? And there's a unique coalition that comes together in most of those counties um, that are pushing for it. Mm -hmm. So bootleggers who are making illicit alcohol have an interest. They're not particularly interested in a county having legal sale of alcohol. Why? Well, because if you, <laughs> if you can buy good alcohol or you have to buy or you're buying bootleg alcohol, mm -hmm. they're going to be cut out of the marketplace. 
At the same time, the Baptists don't want alcohol, mm. and so they like the moral statement of saying alcohol is not legal in this county. And those two groups end up coming together and wanting the same policy outcome, which is no, al- which is no alcohol, no legal alcohol in the county. Mm-hmm. And we see this play out over and over again. And it's and the arrangement almost always follows the same pattern, which is you have a pecuniary direct interest where the bootleggers don't care about the morality of alcohol. They're concerned that they'll be pushed out of the marketplace mm-hmm. who then come together with the Baptists who have a moral sort of position mm-hmm. and the Baptists and the bootleggers <clears throat> come together to do it. And often, and often what's happening is the Baptist is providing cover for the bootlegger. Mm. This is almost always the case in places when you hear somebody talking about, we should change policy X because of the children. Mm-hmm. You dig very deep, you're going to identify an interest that wants the policy that is now linked up with, with the mm-hmm. moral group. They, they happen all the time. And the question then is, how on earth do they come together? Mm-hmm. Because they're not natural allies. In fact, they typically hate each other. And in fact, um, if you dig into some of the more uh, complicated regulatory ones, especially in the environment, they'll have said mean things about each other. Mm -hmm. Um, A political entrepreneur, on the other hand, is who steps into the middle and says, your interest, you both want the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to get you to work together necessarily for it. Maybe I can, but probably not. But I can see the opportunity, and if we get a policy that you both can support we're more likely to get the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so it brings them together uh, to create strange bedfellows. They end up being, you end up having the bootlegger and the Baptist both supporting the same policy outcome. Mm. And so as a result, what you see is these coalitions that are a little bit, they look strange on the surface until you dig down into what the interests are and why they would need to come together. Mm. And often they they have to they come together because suddenly now the allocation mechanism is met by the supporters of the two groups. Mm. So I want to end this discussion on the scientific component by touching on one last element, which is sort of more of a local politics perspective, sure. which I think is probably the most like interesting and funny one. We especially if we want to talk about like NIMBYs or yeah. um, I remember the other day we we're talking about fifty thousand dollars allocated for Great Barrington Park benches. So. That was that was just a fun moment in a, in a town <laughs> meeting where uh, in New England towns you have an open town meeting and people the citizens can make motions from the floor that happened this year at uh, in here in Great Barrington. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. So on that note, right? So why do we have you know interest groups that don't want people building anything and no like, no development, no business development? Why are there these people at town hall meetings asking for fifty thousand dollars for park benches, right? So what are some of these mechanics that drive like these local policy-making decisions? Well, I mean, ultimately, um, why do people go to government? It's a question of why do people go to government for, for what they want? And mm. the answer is the same, the same answer you get to when you ask the old pedantic question, why, do I, why, does, why, do, why, why, does, why does a bank robber rob banks? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question, of course, is what's well, because that's where they keep the money. Fundamentally, that's also true of government. Why do people use government to try to prevent development? Well, because it can. Mm-hmm. Um, why do people go to town meeting and ask and want more park benches? <laughs> well, because government's the entity that can provide it. Mm. And so the reality is that um, the system we exist in 
has a has the is is going to have the ability to to perform some of those things. And the question is, do we expand the number of things government can provide, or do we limit it? Because we know people will go will go to government to do things, to get things they want, because it's where the money is. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally. That's the, ultimately the discussion of politics. Um, mm -hmm. There's a great quote from a, a political scientist that politics, um, political science is the study of who gets what and when. Mm -hmm. um, I add the why mm -hmm. to that sort of in modern political science. But really, that's part of what we're studying is who gets what, when and why. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I want to add another qu question on top of that and. We see a narrative. We're seeing a fundamental shift in who votes for what political party in the United States. The Democrats used to call themselves, you know, the multiracial coalition of, um, like maybe the working class as well, and then the Republicans are more sort of like this conservative, white voting, uh, more middle middle class, upper class. And now you're starting to see that Obama racial coalition break apart. People are now calling the Democratic Party like the coastal elite party. Now the Republicans are allegedly the working class party. So, I guess in a really like what is Ryan Young's theory well, about Well, I think your, your uh, bias is showing a little bit there because that is a, a textbook Republican description of, mm -hmm. of the parties. The, mm. the Democrats would, I think, have a very different sort of um, description. The reality is that parties are ne have never been static in the United States. And in fact, one of the reasons why we can trace the continuity of the parties um, well back to... Um, so we can trace the roots of the Democratic Party back to Jefferson, essentially. Um, not in ideas, not in ideology, but you can you can have this you have a line that you can trace. Republicans you can trace back to Lincoln in eighteen in eighteen sixty and the founding of the Republican Party in eighteen fifty six. Um, but part of the reason why that's possible is because the coalition continually evolves in both parties, and in fact. We don't have to go very far back in time to identify a massive switch in the coalition in the Democratic Party. I mean, you only have to go back to the 1960s, um, and lesser, and then in the Republican Party at that same time, you have the Southern strategy by Nixon that's going to con going to accelerate the flip in the coalition of the Democratic Party. And now we're seeing another. We've seen another. Um, sort of massive coalition. Political science, we call them realignments. Mm -hmm. um, they're, all, they're only identified after the fact. Um, in the middle of that, it's never clear what's going on. But it's, it's clear to me we have a shift that's happening at the moment. What it will end up looking like, I don't know. Um, certainly, questions of populism are at the forefront in both parties. Mm -hmm. um, the Republicans have had the most press on this, but you also have a populist push within the Democratic Party. And that, those realigning forces, I think, are remaking the coalitions. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, the parties may well end up looking and feeling very different 20 years from now. And in fact, the only thing I would say about the parties um, with any certainty is that if we transported ourselves... Um, 30 years into the future, so it's now 2050 uh, or so, um, they, won't, they, they will not be advocating the same things, the coalition will not be the same, and they'll have in some way be fundamentally different. Hmm. But I'll predict there will still be two of them, two major parties, and they will be still arguing over the scope 
of what government should or should not be allowed to do. Um, just the policy areas will be different. Hmm. And I guess I want to end by asking sort of a looking forward, <clears throat> looking forward question, which is, I'm sure many people, especially many of our colleagues, would say, look at what you just heard or what you just said and say, what a mess, right? This political thing, what a mess. Democracy, what a mess. And so perhaps like an anarcho-capitalist might say, this is why we need to prioritize everything, abolish government. And then on the other extreme, you might have the Chinese government, which frequently says this is why you need a vanguard Leninist party to you know do what's best for the people and avoid all the interest, <clears throat> avoid all the interest groups. So what is your solution and where would you fall between that spectrum? Uh, I mean, democracy isn't <clears throat> magic um, and government isn't magic. Um, and sometimes we have this perception that that they are. By the same token, the market isn't magic, and mm. the Communist Party is certainly not <laughs> magic. Um, but the reality is that the hard questions that we should ask ourselves, I think, as citizens, is what are the bounds we wish to place on government, and how do we reinforce that those that those bounds get observed? And that's something that gets has, that ends up being renegotiated, whether we like it or not, every generation or so. Um, I tend to be someone who looks at it and says we should have very, very strict bounds on government. I think we actually see better outcomes in that. Um, and that government should be doing a, a fairly narrow range of things. Um, and it should do those things efficiently hopefully effectively. I know I can't have either of those things in reality because all of the incentives um, push up against that. But fundamentally, I'm left with sort of the Winston Churchill mm -hmm. sort of response to, to democracy, which is, it's the worst, <laughs> but it's better than anything else we've, we've identified. And I, mm -hmm. I tend to think that as a whole, that's that's a, a fairly correct assert, assumption about, especially sort of the American style system is how things operate. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Is it messy? Absolutely it is. What would we replace it with that mm. would be better? Mm. I, I can't identify that. And the natural restrictions on power hard baked into the American system prevent some of the worst outcomes from happening. Mm. Well, on that, I'll, let's conclude what's been a great interview. Yeah, thanks, Ethan. Of course, and thanks for being on the show. If you really, really liked what you heard and you want to, be, want to support more cutting-edge researchers like Ryan, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you.